The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. This morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. I'm going to deal with that text, and I'm going to deal with about four or five others as we walk through this. So today we're going to close out a series that I've entitled Christ Applied. The last three parts of this sermon series, it was a four-part series. We dealt with what I termed the big four doctrines, justification, sanctification, preservation, and now we'll close this series out with um, this magnificent doctrine called uh, glorification. So I've enjoyed preaching through this. It's been a help. There's so much that we could have done with all of these sermons. There's so many different directions we could have gone with it. These are huge, massive doctrines. So I hope it's been helpful to you. I hope it's encouraged you in all of it. Um, I found it beneficial to myself for my own understanding, so I hope the same for you. So after today, next week, I'm probably going to deal, uh, I'm probably going to go into the Psalms next week. There's, there's a p- specific Psalm that's been on my heart, so I'm probably going to preach that next week. And then after that, we're going to head into the book of Philippians. So we're going to dive into the book of Philippians starting the new year. Philippians is great. We're going to be dealing with joy. We're going to be dealing with humility. We're going to be dealing, Philippians has high Christology, which is just a really fancy way of saying that there are some very strong and strong and marked details about Jesus Christ in the book of Philippians. So I'm excited to unpack that for you. It's going to be great. I hope you miss it. Philippians is just, a, it's just a really good book, I think. In my opinion, it's a great book. So that's where we're headed after this. After today, we'll do a psalm next week and then we're going to head in the book of Philippians. So everybody okay? I'm thankful for you this morning, so let's pray quickly, and then we'll jump off into the doctrine of uh, glorification. Father, I'm thankful to you for another day of life in this special time of year wherein we acknowledge the birth of a Savior, not just any type of Savior, but a specific Savior, Father. So draw our hearts to clear conclusions about these doctrines that we have articulated over the last three sermons and even throughout this sermon today and may your purposes be accomplished father i'm overwhelmed at times and i'm thankful to you for the clarity the clarity by which you speak to us in scripture the clarity that even a child can understand so i pray today that above all that you help me be clear i pray a special prayer for greg I pray for his deployment overseas in this very moment, Father, during this holiday season. I pray that you strengthen him. I pray that you encourage him. I pray that you hold him fast. And I pray that you mold him to your likeness. In Christ's name, amen. To the text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Hear the inspired word of God through the apostle Paul in the second letter to the church at Thessalonica, verses 13 through 15. Paul writes, he said, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. We dealt with that term beloved last week because God chose you as the first fruits. That's just a fancy word of saying he chose you for salvation to be saved through sanctification. There's that word, sanctification, by the spirit and belief and truth. To this he called you through our gospel, you hear the possessive part of that, our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a sweet phrase there. And then he says, so then brothers, stand firm. He turns to application. 
He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Second Thessalonians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and just like about every other letter he writes in the New Testament, he's dealing with false teaching here. He's addressing false teachers. He's addressing incorrect teaching in the church that's filtered into the church, and this letter is really no different Primarily, the people in this letter that Paul is dealing with, they have a misunderstanding about the nature of the second coming of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you realize that we anticipate a second coming of Jesus. Not only the birth, but a second coming. And in the midst of all that, he's also randomly addressing this idea of idleness. These people have become idle as they've misunderstood the second coming of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. So you, you've got to remember everyone throughout the New Testament, they thought that Jesus was, everybody really did, they thought he was really, really close to coming back. If they were here today with us, they would probably be stunned that we're, some two, we're over 2,000 years out and he still hasn't returned. They really couldn't imagine it. The people that are in this context of this letter that Paul is writing, they couldn't have imagined that we were still over 2,000 years out and he still hadn't returned. They couldn't fathom it, fathom it. So there's a misunderstanding about the second coming of Jesus. There's idleness. There's slackness in this church. And so right Right after this primary section where he deals with this in in chapters 1 and part of verses 2, Paul deals with this. He addresses the misunderstanding of the second coming kind of there in chapter 2. And he's basically telling these people, hey, this is a 50 cent tour of it. He's basically telling them, hey, Jesus hasn't come back yet, so get off your hands. (laughs) You got to get to work. And right after that, right after the, so basically right after all that in the letter, he's giving them a very straightforward statement. I'm going to walk right through it. I'm going to unpack the doctrine of glorification. I'm going to tell you how that doctrine applies to you. And then I'm going to wrap this all together in the Christmas narrative. So he gives us this straightforward statement of thanksgiving here. It's sort of thanksgiving and encouragement. And so this is Paul. If you read Paul, this is Paul. He's theology and then application, right into application. He's always doing this. He's theology and he's application, and then sometimes he mixes these doxologies into things. So look at this verse. We're going to walk right through here. He says in verse 13, he says, he says we ought to give thanks here. He says, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. You hear the preservation in that verse? If you were here last weekend, you'll understand what that means. You see the word beloved there? Paul is saying you need, to give, you need to give thanks because you're beloved, you've been adopted, and you're being preserved. Why do you give thanks? Look at what he does in the rest of this. Because God chose you as the first fruits, or he chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. Why do you give thanks? You hear the doctrine of justification in this part of this verse here. We talked about this a few sermons ago. This is the gospel. You give thanks because God chose you for salvation. That's justification. And then there's sanctification in that verse. Paul is saying give thanks for your adoption because God chose you for salvation and because he's sanctifying you in the truth. This is Christ applied to your life. This is what we've been talking about. Anywhere in the Bible, this is so important, anywhere in the Bible where justification is, sanctification looms not too far behind it. Anywhere where justification is, sanctification looms because it's a twofold grace in your life. I told you that. It's very close, very close in that. Sanctification looms very close to justification, and Paul is walking right through this with plain language. So we're supposed to give thanks. Why do we give thanks? Because of salvation, because of justification and sanctification. 
For what reason are we supposed to do this? This is where it is. This is where we're going. Everything we're, everything we're headed to this morning is right there in verse 14. He says, To this he called you through our gospel, the possessive, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we give thanks? What is the reason for justification? What is the reason for sanctification? What is the reason for preservation? So that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is, this is sanctification. He's telling us that through salvation, through sanctification, your sanctification, it includes suffering and persecution. I didn't have time to get into that. All of that is for a future glorification wherein you will share with Christ's glory. You realize this? This is the Bible for you. Sharing in glory is not something that's added to your salvation. It's something that you've already received. If you're in the faith, this is applied to your life right now. You're just having to wait. You just have, it's a game of patience at this point. And I told you that you received this stuff at your salvation. It's already occurred. I'll fill that out. I'll give you more about that later on. But it's already occurred for you. It just has to, it, it has to be realized. This, you get all of this in salvation. When God justifies you, when you're converted, justification, sanctification, preservation, and glorification, all of that is immediately applied to your life. Some of this is just a waiting game. So then how shall we apply this now? How do we apply this now? Paul tells us this. He says, because of all these truths, because of justification, sanctification, preservation, and glorification, what do you do? He tells you. He says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, i.e. scriptures. He's saying, stand firm and hold to scriptures. As a result of all these doctrines that have been applied to your life, you stand firm and hold to scripture. Do you see how everything we've talked about in this entire four-part series is right there in these verses? <laughs> Do you see that? You're like, wait a minute, Britt. Are you telling me that you're not the only person that's ever linked all this stuff together? I'm not. T- I'm telling you I'm not. Apostle Paul did it. It's right in front of you. Wait a second, Britt. You mean to tell me that justification, sanctification, preservation, and glorification are all linked together in the Bible in two or three verses? (laughs) The answer to that is yes. And Paul does this. He does this in a random letter that most of you probably have never read. And you have no idea what he's even dealing with in this stuff. So this is a map for us. This is a map for our life. I'm not going off the reservation with this. This stuff is right here plain in Scripture. So I told you, Scripture is so clear. The clarity of Scripture is God's grace to you. So let's talk about glorification. Let's talk about glorification here and how it applies to our life. Here's some preliminary thoughts on glorification. There's There's a lot in this. There's a lot in this doctrine. So I'm just going to try to give you the big overview of it this morning. Glorification is the final part of your redemption... The full realization of the application of Christ to your life, and this is what occurs in glorification. Your body will be resurrected. There's a physical resurrection that happens to you. You will be made fully like Jesus Christ the the best way that you can in your human form, and you will share in his glory. You will be blameless before the judgment seat of, of, of God of Christ because of your previous justification and you will enter into the new heavens and new earth. That's glorification. Let me tell you this again. What happens in glorification is the full realization of Christ applied to your life. Your body will be resurrected. You will be made fully like Jesus Christ and you will share in his glory. 
And you will be made blameless before the judgment seat of Christ because of your previous justification. And you will enter into the new heavens and new earth. This is already guaranteed to you as a Christian. How do you know that, Britt? How do you know that this is guaranteed to us as a Christian? Because Paul wrote this letter called Romans. And in chapter 8 of Romans, the last part of chapter 8 in Romans, he says, that, he says this, hear the words of the Apostle Paul. Listen to the tense in these verses. This is past tense. <laughs> Paul's not just making this stuff up. Listen to this. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And to those whom he called, he also justified. And to those whom he justified, he also glorified. Duh. Past tense. You hear that? This is a joy to us. This translation is accurate. Do you hear the past tense in this? It's unbelievable. It's a completed event. And at this point, it's already been applied to your life. And at this point, all it is is a waiting game. The cake is baked. All we're doing is waiting on it to be served. Christmas is on my mind. I've been eating cake. The bodily, so how does it, this is important for us. It's past tense, it's already occurred. And then how, this, but this is, the, this is the kicker to all of it. There's so much into this. I can't get into all of this this morning. I wish I could, but I want you to hear this because I think this is a sweet truth for a lot of you in here. The, the, this doctrine is directly tied to the bodily resurrection. The bodily resurrection is so important. This is why the resurrection by Jesus is so important. The bodily resurrection. I go to funerals often and I, I want to talk about the bodily resurrection. <laughs> Your soul goes with Jesus, but the body will be resurrected. Christ has been raised to the dead. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. The bodily resurrection. And so, broadly speaking, this is three elements that occur in that. When you're resurrected, this is glorification. When Christ returns, your body will be resurrected and the Christian soul will be made perfect. That's the first part of this. The Christian soul will be made perfect. There will be moral perfection. You'll see Christ face to face. You'll have freedom from sin. Part of sin is your brokenness internally. You'll have freedom from sin, that's number one. So the Christian soul will be made perfect in glorification. The Christian body, this is so good for us. The Christian body will be transferred, transformed into a glorified body. All of the body, hear me in here. If your body is failing you, this is a truth from God for you. There'll come a day, there'll come a day where the brokenness, the sickness, the pain, the struggle, your body will be resurrected and it'll be glorified. As Christians, we don't devalue the body. Jesus rose from the dead. God values the body. He's gonna give you a new body. That's number two. And the, number three is what happens in glorification? The Christian will enter the heavenly city. Sometimes there's so, much, there's so much misnomers out there about heaven. You're not gonna be floating around in the clouds playing a harp, hanging out with a bunch of people you don't like. <laughs> God's gonna renew the heavens and the earth. He's gonna renew things. You're gonna have a perfectly moral soul. If you struggle with sin, I, I can't stand sin. I can't wait for the day when I'll struggle with this stuff no more. I can't wait for the day where I don't have to bury anybody else. I can't wait for the day when these things will be, pup, uh, be done forever. We'll no longer be strangers in a foreign land. Hebrews eleven thirteen 13, he tells, it tells us that we're aliens, we're strangers. 
If you're a Christian, you're an alien in a foreign land right now. And we wait the second coming. We'll no longer be that. They'll, they'll no, they, we'll no longer be foreigners. We'll no longer be sojourners. We won't be, we'll be, the earth will be made, they'll be remade. There'll be perpetual worship of God. We'll have joy and fellowship with all believers. You're gonna have to put up with me. <laughs> you're gonna have to put up with me up there. We're gonna have all of this stuff for all of eternity. The Christian soul will be made perfect. The Christian body will be transformed into a glorified body. Thanks be to God for that. And you will enter into the heavenly city. This is the doctrine of glorification. This is the doctrine of glorification. So what is our response to this doctrine? What are we supposed to do with all this? There's joy, there's happiness, there's hope. There's all this stuff wrapped up in it. But I think Paul tells us right here in this text He tells us right here in this text, he says to you in verse 15, he says, because of justification, because of sanctification, because of preservation, because of glorification, what do we do? What do we do with this doctrine? He says that you stand firm. Because of these truths in your life, you stand firm in the scriptures. It's right in front of you. He's saying to these Christians that in spite of the challenges, in spite of the persecutions, in spite of the misrepresentations of Christianity, ever dealt with some of that? (laughs) Your faith being misrepresented? In spite of the assaults on the faith or the afflictions, the the body failing you, stand firm in the faith because one day, one day, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be fully realized. What is so encouraging about this is that we're not alone in this response. We're not alone in this. This has been the call of the Christian since this was written. This has been the call of the Christian all throughout the Old Testament. We're not alone in our call to stand firm. This happened all throughout the Bible, and it was all directly tied to the entrance of Jesus Christ in this world. How can I say that? How can I say that this has been the response of everybody in the Bible, for the most part, that was a child of God? How can I say this? Let me give you some examples here. How about the prophet Isaiah? We deal with the prophets at Christmas. These people foretold this Messiah named Jesus coming. How about the prophet Isaiah? Take him for example. Take Isaiah for example. This is a man that's dealing in a world where the people of God, the chosen people of God, the people all around him, the the bottom line in the book of Isaiah is the people they didn't trust God. (laughs) I feel that way some days. Don't get self-righteous on me. The people in Isaiah, they didn't trust God. They didn't trust God. And so Isaiah's having to deal with this. They placed their trust in other people. And so when God calls this prophet, it's unbelievable. If you read the call of Isaiah, which is after the text that Josh preached on the other week, if you read the call of Isaiah, God gives him directive to go harden the people's hearts. Can you believe that? I've read that and I thought, man, if God called me somewhere to go harden people's hearts, <laughs> I'm thinking, good grief, can you imagine that? Almost dumbfounded. Isaiah, he's almost dumbfounded. He doesn't know what to do. The only thing he knows what to do is say, how long am I supposed to do this? God tells him to go harden these people's hearts and Isaiah's like, okay, well, how long am I supposed to do <laughs> How long am I supposed to do this? And he's t- he t- think about this. He tells Isaiah, he says, until the land is devastated and the people are exiled through judgment. Can you imagine this? You get called of God. God says, go harden these people's hearts until the whole place is ruined and these people are kicked out. 
And then he tells them after total destruction, God tells him, God gives him this call on his life. He says after total destruction, this thing called the holy seed, this thing called the holy seed, it will remain in the stump and it will sprout and bring about salvation. Do you want to know what the holy seed is? Jesus. Yes. I heard you whisper it. There's eternal hope that remained. So Isaiah knew, though he saw dimly, he, what did he know? He knew that he needed to stand firm based upon the promised hope of future glory. That's all he knew. He knew he needed to stand firm based upon the promised hope of future glory. From the holy seed, he prophesies about a glory that will come unexpected to men, a glory that is founded in a new covenant brought by David, a glory that will, that will be life to your soul, a glory that will provide water to everyone that thirst. He stood firm. Hear what he says in chapter 55 of Isaiah. Just listen to these words. This is a man standing firm. He's prophesying. He's telling them about a future glory. Listen to this. He says, come, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy, eat, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. Isaiah's prophesying here about this future glory. He's saying, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in the rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. This is, these words are so sweet. And I will make you an everlasting covenant. Do you hear justification in that? My steadfastness, sure love for David. Behold. I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, I shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because the Lord your God, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This is a prophet standing firm. Isaiah stood firm as he anticipated the coming of glory yet to be seen. Or take, for example, Mary. Stand firm. Take, for example, Mary, the mother of Jesus. This young lady, we've heard this story so much, but sometimes we don't realize how radical it is. This young woman, she's visited by an angel. Think about this. She's visited by an angel. She's told that the Holy Spirit is gonna descend upon her and she's gonna give birth to the Son of God. Are you kidding me? She's gonna give birth to the Son of God. Do you realize how scandalous this is? Can you imagine this? And then she has to deal with the public shame of this. She has to deal with the fiance, someone that's been legally pledged to marry her. He's dumbfounded. Matter of fact, matter of fact, he tried to graciously bow out of the whole deal. He tries to graciously bow out of the whole deal. And the Bible tells us that he resolved to divorce her quietly in order to minimize the shame. This is Mary. And this is just the beginning of it for her. This is just the beginning of it for her. She gives birth to the Son of God. He's born in a, in a manger, in a barn with animals. And not only is, is, is she not only disposed and given the responsibility to give birth to the Savior of the world, she holds on to the knowledge of it. She believes this stuff. 
She believes that she's giving birth to the, to the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. We've heard this stuff so much. Mary has a unique call upon her life. Do you realize that she endured so much? She endured so much because of her, uh, her unique call. But amid all of this, Mary responds to all of this. She says, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your words. You see, Mary, she stood firm as she anticipated the coming glory of what has yet to be seen. Mary stood firm. Or what about Jesus Christ? Take, for example, Jesus Christ, the one that came that we might be reconciled to God. The one that came that we might be reconciled to God the Father. The anticipated Messiah that the whole scripture it points towards. The God-man that was extended to us, extended to humanity. He was extended to you and I. Jesus Christ. He experiences the same world that we live in. He experiences the same world that we live in. He experienced the pain, the affliction. He experienced joy and sorrow. He experienced temptation and betrayal. He experienced happiness and holiness. He experienced love and kindness. All of these things came, all of these things that I just named, they're a product of your sanctification. All of these things that come to you as a result of being justified, as being a disciple of his, he's experienced them too. This is what makes the gospel remarkable. God came to you. He came down to you. But most of all, Jesus came, this is so important for us, Jesus came to take possession of his own glory. He came to take possession of his own glory. He talks about this in the high priestly prayer, prayer found in John 17. This old dead guy, John Knox, he called this prayer the anchor of, a, of, of his soul. It was read to him on his deathbed. The high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, that the fa- he says to the Father, he says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do you see how Jesus is coming to take possession of his own glory? Even unto his death, he's mocked. There was even a sign placed over his head that, that had this sarcastic the sarcastic phrase that said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And he was challenged in his claims and he was antagonized in order that his pride might bubble up. And the only thing that Jesus outwardly possessed at the time of his death was, was just a robe. And he stood firm. He stood firm as he anticipated the coming of glory yet to be seen. The resurrection. He stood firm as he anticipated the resurrection, the grounding of the doctrine of glorification. How do we respond to this truth? How do we respond to the anticipation of obtaining a glory where we will be made like Jesus Christ? We stand firm to what has been taught to us as we anticipate the coming glory that has yet to be seen. We stand firm. Paul gives us this in the text. He says, stand firm. So how do we stand firm in this present age? Christ has been applied to your life. You're waiting for a final glorification. How do you stand firm? This one final question does, how do we stand firm in our present age? We see that Isaiah and the prophets stood firm. We see that Mary, the remarkable mother of Jesus Christ, she stood firm. We see that Christ stood firm. How do we stand firm as we anticipate the coming of our glorification? The answer is the easy. 
It's the, it's the crux of this whole sermon series. You live for the unseen. You live for the unseen. The coming of glory to all these people, they anticipated and they stood firm and they waited for the unseen. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Hear these words from Paul here. He gives us clarity on how do we stand firm here. 2 Corinthians, Paul has given us an exhortation here about how to stand firm. 2 Corinthians, Paul is in the middle of a difficult situation, probably the most difficult situation he ever experienced in his ministry, maybe apart from him being in prison. His call as an apostle has been brought into question. He's, he has this calling as an apostle. It's been brought into question in 2 Corinthians. And these people really are in full tilt rebellion against Paul in this letter here. And they're calling him into question. And they're saying that Paul is inferior. They're saying that he's hypocritical. He doesn't keep his word. All, all these sorts of accusations against him. So Paul is one of, the, he's one of these tight junctures in his ministry. And he, and he, and he has to stand firm. He has to stand firm in the middle of all of this. And he tells us, how do we stand firm? Listen to verse 16 here of chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, anybody felt that? A light momentary, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What do we do as we're being prepared? He tells us in verse 18 here. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. How do we stand firm in the midst of the world that we live in now? We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For these things that are seen, the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen, they're eternal. How do we stand firm in the present age, Brit? We live for the unseen. How do we live for the unseen? I'm glad you ask. I'm glad you ask. How do we live for the unseen? Because this is the entire culmination of this sermon series right here. It's, everything's right in this. In the Christmas season, we're about the material. I'm not opposed to that. This this guy with a beard's coming to my house this week, God willing, and he's coming. And I'm telling you... I, the only thing consistent when I ask my daughter what she wants for Christmas is pink ice cream. I don't speak, I don't speak Bubby sometimes. That's what we call our kid. Her nickname's Bubby. I don't speak Bubby, but my wife speaks Bubby, and she tells me that's strawberry ice cream. I don't know what that means that our kid is asking for food on Christmas. <laughs> I have no idea what that means for us, but that's the truth of all of it. So how do we, that, th these things are happening. We're not against the material here, but in the middle of all of this, this sermon series has called us to live for the unseen in the midst of a period of our lives, in a period where the material is everywhere. How do we live for the unseen, Brit? <laughs> How do we live for the unseen? Number one, hold justification right here. You see the first title up there? The first sermon, justification. This whole series in some way, I've conti I'm continually coming back to the idea of holding justification close. You've got to hold justification close. What I mean by that is you've got to keep the gospel closer. You'll get wobbly. Justification is the foundation of all this. How do you live for the unseen? You've got to keep justification close. You have to continually go back to the source. You have to continually go back to the gospel. You have to continually go back to the source. If you lose the gospel, if you lose the gospel, if you lose the source of your preservation, your sanctification, and your glorification, you'll never make it. 
if you lose it. Live in adoration, live in humility, live in dependence as you hold the gospel close. Second, if you ever lose sight of the gospel, if you ever let it go, you'll lose the reason that we're doing all of this stuff. You'll lose the reason that we're doing any of this stuff. It's that the gospel might be known. It might be proclaimed so that others might experience Christ. There's so much joy in justification. There's so much joy into it. Number one, how do we stand and live for the unseen? We hold justification close. Number two, how do we live for the unseen and stand firm in a world of material? Pursue gospel obedience and sanctification. If you were here in this sermon, you realize that gospel obedience is a particular type of obedience. I told you that you had to live out grace-based living. You cannot pursue the unseen based upon legalism. It doesn't last. In order to live for the unseen, you have to live with a heartfelt dedication to God's will. And you have to hold on to the gospel close. And you've got to daily deal with yourself and your junk. You've got to submit your life to God and his direction upon it. And you've got to lean upon the gospel to bring all of this about. You've got to pursue gospel obedience and sanctification. How do we live for the unseen? How do we stand firm and live for the unseen? We, when you fail, you have to take comfort in your preservation as an adopted child of God. You're gonna fail. You're broken. I love you, but you're broken. How do you stand firm and live for the unseen as we wait for the glorification, as we wait for the things that are unseen, the final glorification? You take comfort in your preservation as an adoption by God the Father. Lay hold of assurance that comes to you by being adopted by God the Father. This is the doctrine of preservation we talked about last week. When you fail... When you fail in your gospel obedience, when you misstep in your brokenness, you have to go back to your adoption. You have to go back to your adoption. It gives you resolve in the midst of struggle. It gives you clarity in the midst of persecution. It gives you aim in the midst of the fog. It empowers you to stand firm. Lay hold of adoption that is reserved for God's children, that's made plain in Scripture, and that is assured to you by the Holy Spirit. And finally, how do we stand firm as we live for the unseen, as we wait for the final glorification? This, none of this is an accident. None of this is an accident, so we have to look forward to glorification. You have to live with glorification in mind. You have to live with eternity in mind. All of this stuff we talked about this morning, it's no accident. God intended this for a particular end and for a particular purpose for his glory. It's by way of his glory that you become partakers in glorification. It's by way of him taking possession of his own glory. Glorification, you see, it gives you purpose in life. It gives you resolve in the midst of struggle. It gives you aim when it's foggy. It's remarkable. You stand and empowers you to stand firm like the great prophets, like the remarkable Mary, the mother of Jesus, and even in some ways like the one, the long-awaited Savior. You see for the Christian the things that are unseen, the things that are seen, the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. They're temporary. They don't mean that they're evil. 
I don't mean that we withdraw from the world. It just means that we should understand that the things that we are dealing with today, they're temporary, temporary, and we've got to stay focused on the unseen because these things, justification, sanctification, preservation, glorification, these things, they're eternal. They're everlasting. They give you purpose. They give you aim. This is Christ applied to your life. This is Christ applied to your life. The story of Jesus' entrance into the world is a story of generations of men and women living for the, women living for the unseen. They stood firm as they lived for the unseen. How do we stand firm as we live for the unseen? We hold justification close. We pursue gospel obedience. We rest in our adoption as children of God and we long for full glorification. May our Father, may our Father in heaven who loved us in spite of ourselves, may he grant us the desire to stand firm as we live for the unseen. Let the application of Christ to our lives in justification, sanctification, and preservation give us hope for an already accomplished glorification and may these four doctrinal truths May they elevate you above the challenges of this world as we long for the day when we'll stand with Jesus and gather our heritage. The Bible tells us we'll stand with Jesus and we'll gather our heritage as conquerors and sin over sin and death forevermore. And we will at last, my friends, we will at last drink from the spring of the water of eternal life without payment. This is the doctrine of glorification. This is Christ applied to your life. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, implant these truths in